Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today's guest is Miguel Blacout. Miguel is one of the smartest people I have ever had the pleasure with talking to uh, inside the training and nutrition realm. He is an athlete. He's an academic. He has a long history of training and nutrition as a coach, but he is also a uh, very passionate academic and uh, somebody just diving into the research constantly. Um, he has studied many things. So for me to say what his degree is in or becoming in because he is in uh, pursuit of his master's currently um, would be hard to do because he has studied nutritional biochemistry, physiology, exercise science, and now even neurodegenerative diseases. So he's working on something much bigger than just fitness, you could say. Um, but he is somebody who is very impressive and he's helped a lot of people behind the scenes in their science uh, with their content. So a lot of people like Jeff Nippert, Stephanie Buttermore, Alan Aragon, Lane Norton, uh, Menno Henselman, um, and now he's even working with people like Dr. Andy Galpin. So he has kind of been behind the scenes helping publish some of the top science over the years um, and putting out such great information. So he's also the uh, chief scientific officer at Revive Stronger. So he's got a long list of credentials and reasons for you to listen to the, the advice and the information that he is about to tell you. Today, we're going to dive into quite a bit of topics from his story to understanding research to muscle protein synthesis, muscle damage for hypertrophy, uh, glucose disposal agents, and much, much more. He has a wealth of knowledge, and today we're going to dive into so much great information that I think you're really going to need a pad and a pen for this one because you're going to take a lot of notes. Before I get into this episode, make sure you do me one quick favor. Take a screenshot of the show if you enjoy it and if it's helping you in any way, shape, or form. Head over to Instagram, post on your story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom, and make sure you tag Miguel at MBlacout, so M-B-L-A-C-U-T-T. Um, tag us both. We want to see who is listening to this podcast. We want to thank you. We want to share it on our story as well. Last but not least, leave us a five-star rating review. It is greatly appreciated so we can continue to grow this show and reach more people and help them with the message of science-based training and nutrition. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to this jam-packed episode with the one and only Miguel Blacout. All right, Miguel, I am excited to have you on the podcast, man. It's been uh, a while trying to get you on, but I'm excited we finally fit it in your schedule because I know shit is just crazy for you. But I'm, I'm excited for you to share some knowledge with the listeners because you have so many different things that you have kind of dipped your toes into and researched on and studied with that um, every time I listen to a podcast with you or I hear somebody talk about you, it's like some kind of new information or new perspective or a new way of thinking that I haven't thought of before. Um, so I'm excited because I always learn so much from listening to you. So I'm excited for the listeners too as well. But before I kind of keep going on, can you fill us in with uh, essentially who you are in a nutshell, kind of like your story and, and what made you kind of get into this field and start pursuing your master's, so on and so forth? Awesome. First of all, thank you very much for having me on, Cody. You've had some amazing guests on here and I really, really appreciate Appreciate the fact that I get to be one of them. Absolutely. Um, my story, I guess, okay, I'll, I'll start kind of far back because I have to, to tell a complete beautiful story here. Um, my grandmother <laughs> was the first woman in South America to own a very large chain of gyms. She is one of the first people that made it cool for women in South America to go to the gym, to lift weights, and to be strong. 
Um, a lot of countries, especially Bolivia, it's a very uh, chauvinistic society. So, you know, women are meant to just kind of sit at home and be mothers and not go to the gym. And my grandmother opened this huge chain of gyms. She played music, she had weights, and she made it very, very cool. Um, so then my mom literally grew up inside of a gym. Like her playpen was literally inside of the gym. Um, and you can go stalk her Instagram. It's at strong Maria strong. She is more jacked than all of us put together. Um, so then I, by default, literally grew up inside of a gym, um, and, and around the whole fitness nutrition culture. Um, at the same time, I've, I've also always been super interested in science. Um, I've always had a very scientific mindset of, of just asking why things are the way that they are. So when I began to get more serious about fitness, I was like, okay, well, the magazines say this, a ton of people say this, but there has to be an actual science to this because everything, at least I believe that everything in life can be explained by science. So what is the science of nutrition and training and getting big and all these things? So I started to really dive into the, the, the science of, at first it was nutrition and then uh, I got into training. Um, and I was, I, I saw some quite rapid growth with all of this. I started to read all the, you know, I started at first reading what Lane and, and Lyle McDonald and Eric Helms had to say, and then quickly just wanted to get into just reading the peer reviewed research myself and starting to contribute to it. So after kind of developing a knowledge base of, of nutrition and training and sports psychology by reading the, the literature myself, um, I felt comfortable enough to uh, start a YouTube channel in which I discuss these things. Um, and then in one of these videos that, 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 that I was making, uh, Alan Aragon comments on one. It was like a video on leucine. And he's like, this is an awesome video, Miguel. I'm subscribed. So I'm like, okay, this is, this is amazing. So I, I messaged him. I'm like, hey, Alan, I saw that you like my video. Is there anything that I can do for you? Um, and he's like, yeah, if you want, you can write an article for, my, uh, for the Alan Aragon Research Review, which, you know, is before mass, I would, I would say that that was the highest place that you could possibly get published as a uh, fitness writer. Absolutely. Um, so I write one there and he loved that I wrote it on uh, whether or not refeed days are actually useful. Um, now we have more evidence to show that they weren't, but this is back in like maybe 2015 when people really thought that refeed days and uh, quote unquote cheat days would boost your metabolism and increase leptin and all of this. So this is a very nuanced topic back then. Um, he loved it. And then he actually asked me to write an article the next month. Um, so then I had written for Alan. So then I felt, I felt very comfortable. And what I did is I reached out to Dr. Lane Norton, um, and see if I could write anything for him. He said, yes, I started to write for him. Um, and then I began working also with Menno Henselman, so Bayesian bodybuilding, started uh, helping him with his PT course and started helping him with research and actually contributing to the body of evidence myself. Um, and then shortly after that, because I guess I was working with like Alan Lane and Menno, I began working with Jeff Nippert and Stephanie Buttermore. I began to uh, be a consultant for their videos and help them out with their uh, science explained uh, videos and, uh, you know, help Jeff out with, with some consulting and some writing and things like that. And that was just an incredible opportunity. They're just both the most down to earth people I've ever met. Um, so then around the time I met Jeff, I also met Austin Current and I started coaching with him uh, in physique development uh, and then moved on to a position at Revive Stronger, uh, where I'm now the chief science officer. Um, and so that's kind of how I got into the fitness side of things, like a, a lot of um, writing for people and, and producing content and uh, just all of, it, all of it being driven by scientific passion and for the desire to help people. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, 
uh, I started to, to look into master's degrees. I always knew that I wanted a PhD and I started to look into master's degrees and I applied to a couple of schools, um, all very, very sports science related, uh, very uh, elite athlete research. And I got into all the schools that I wanted. And uh, also while, while I did this, I was like, okay, well, Columbia has a program in applied physiology. I can do exercise with, with, with that. I spoke with the supervisor and she was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You can, uh, I'll, I'll let you have free reigns to study exercise if you want uh, to, to study strength and conditioning and elite athletes. Um, and what I did is I thought, okay, cool. What I can do is I can apply to Columbia and if I get in, Brad Schoenfeld does research like two blocks from here at Lehman. So I can have a degree from Columbia and I can do research with Brad Schoenfeld. Like how cool is that? Just have like yeah. the best of both worlds. Um, so I applied to Columbia, got in. Um, and uh, it, it, at first it was, it, was, it was a big debate of whether to come here or not because the primary focus of research here is medical and it, and it is clinical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and at the end of the day, I ended up choosing to come here. And then uh, in, in my mind, I was going to do research with Brad Schoenfeld. Then about six months before coming to Columbia, before starting the semester, I began to look into what I could do afterwards. I began to look at what PhD programs I could do after that might involve exercise. So with this, I began to look into Ivy League schools and what Ivy League schools have exercise researchers. And I stumbled upon someone by the name of Matthew Stoltz Kohlmeinen who did his uh, PhD at UT Austin. Then he did a postdoc at uh, Columbia and a postdoc at Yale. And he's at uh, a faculty at both Yale Medical School and Columbia. So I reached out to him um, because I was like, okay, well, this, this seems like a very natural progression. Like I'll go from McGill to Columbia to Yale. Awesome. Like all these schools are just kind of, you know, in, in the top rank, seem very plausible. And we actually got along super, super well. And the, the, the majority of his research is actually in, in, in psychology, behavioral psychology and, and exercise. Um, we got along super well. And he brought me over to the Yale School of Medicine um, for the summer. And at, at Yale, I be, it was the first time that I was exposed to a true medical environment, seeing things like ALS, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy, all these neurodegenerative diseases and seeing people deal with them and seeing my colleagues kind of talk about their patients and all of this. And all of a sudden, just sports science shrank to me. It was like, how can I devote my life to studying sport and elite athletes when this person is dying, when this person is going gonna, is gonna to get into a totally locked in state, they're not going to be able to even move their eyes and there's nothing they can do about it. Cause that's the thing about ALS. If, if you get ALS, you are going to die and you're going to die slowly, painfully, and it's going to be very scary and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Um, so then after that, I was like, this is what I must study. So then I uh, finished up at Yale and I arrived to Columbia and I was basically like, no, I'm going to study neurodegenerative diseases. Um, so that brings us to where we are right now, where I still do sports science research. Like I have, I believe, three papers coming out with Dr. Andy Galpin. I have uh, a paper coming out on uh, muscle dysmorphia in resistance trained men. I'm working on another paper in muscle dysmorphia, but the bulk of my research is in neurodegenerative diseases and in some neurodevelopmental diseases, just because I feel like for me to have the impact on the world that I want to have, this is what I'm, I must contribute. And I just feel so passionate about helping people in, in these situations that I, I had to just switch focus there. Still, I honor my passion of fitness and training and nutrition by keeping on my Instagram, by putting out as much content as, as possible. But 
take, I've made the, the, the choice that the bulk of my research is going to be in neurodegeneration um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and some cerebral palsy stuff. So yeah, that kind of brings us to where we are right now. Um, and I guess like I can expand further on that and say that, that the, right now my research is focused in neuromechanics um, and in uh, object manipulation. So if you think about um, kind of how you live life, being able to manipulate any object is probably one of the most important tools that you have or important things that you can do, whether that is to pick up a water bottle or open a door, a, a doorknob or use your phone. Object manipulation is pretty much one of the only ways that we have of, of interacting with our environment. So a lot of my work is in uh, seeing how people with, with uh, neurological disorders uh, can interact with these objects and, and how can we improve that. I also do work in computational neuroscience and I also, uh, th this summer, I'm going to be going over to Oxford University to uh, study um, how to use uh, a stem cell-based therapeutics to help people who have muscular dystrophies and cancer cachexia. So kind of approaching things from a very holistic, wholesome standpoint, I guess, <laughs> and rent. Dude, I love that. I mean, first of all, <laughs> extremely impressive. Um, and, it, and it's really cool. It's, it's, I respect that a lot that you kind of, um, I can't speak for you, but kind of felt like called to a, a bigger purpose. And I think that you know, you are such an intelligent person and you're able to articulate things. You're able to dig. Like a lot of people want to know why, but from, and I obviously don't know you on a personal level, but you want to know why on such a deep level that you're able to uncover so much more information. I think that's so helpful because I've seen you help so many people um, in our industry. And man, just the people you were naming, it was, I was like starstruck. Like I'm subscribed to all those people's research reviews and articles and blogs. And I've like paid for their stuff and worked for their stuff, studied from their stuff. Um, and it's just really cool to hear, like you're just naming them off, like person after person. That's amazing. And you're behind probably the read some things for me and all, and all of them. hundred percent. I guarantee. You. And that's what, that's what I was going to say. The coolest thing is that you're behind the scenes doing some of the stuff, you know? Um, and that's so cool, man. So I think I like, like congrats to you on, on finding that and, and being able to continually pursue to something so powerful because something like ALS and neurodegenerative diseases are, obviously a scary thing so having people like you in that field is amazing thank you it's just like eh. to me it's like the hopelessness of it that really gets me and that keeps me working on it yeah. i mean you know i don't want to say anything about cancer but like with cancer if you get it unless you're it's it's in, it's in a very developed stage there is hope like most of the time there is treatment even if it's small hope there is hope but with als or like duchenne's muscular dystrophy there is no hope. These people will die no matter what. Yeah. The hope is you and people like you trying to find something to help, really. Yeah, yeah. Or at least Which is trying too to late. slow too it late down. The, yeah, exactly. And it's too late for most people to get it. So um, that's amazing, man. Um, I, I would love to like this isn't something that I had planned, but I think this is this is very relative to what you're saying and just listening to your your story as how you kind of came about. Cause I get this question all the time, you know. I get a couple questions. One, people are like, where do I find good information on like the latest research. And I usually recommend places like Alan Aragon's research review, mass, things like that, because it's broken down in layman terms for the young trainer. But I also get people that want to dive deeper and deeper. And I'm curious as to what you recommend people do um, from a standpoint of like, how did you really start diving into the research and understanding it on the right level? And what recommendations can you give people who want to, to learn more and advance their knowledge inside of the exercise science realm or nutrition physiology realm, but sometimes in it, are just reading an abstract and leaving, or they don't know how to really get something out of the research, if that makes sense. 
Right. I think that probably the best place to begin, actually, let me break, let me break it down into two scenarios. I think that it depends on whether you just want to be a, a coach and you just want to focus on becoming the best coach possible, or if you want to, to eventually become an, a science communicator and you want to be on the same level as like Eric or Eric, like Eric Helms or Trexler, Greg Knuckles, if you want to be like one of these individuals. If you just want to be a, a coach and you just want to be able to use this information and, and help your clients and develop your your base of knowledge, then I think that sticking with something like Mass, Alan Aragon's research review, the the Revive Stronger research review that's coming out, um, Lane Norton's website, all of these things are going to provide you with the tools that you need to be a, a, a good coach because that's what these people do. They, they focus on, okay, w- what does the science say about how we can improve our athletes, not let's not spend the whole bunch of time discussing, you know, mechanisms and, and molecular pathways, but how can we give people the good information that they, that they need in order to become better coaches or better athletes than themselves? And if that's all you want, that's a hundred percent fine. I think there's way too big of an emphasis right now on people understanding research and being able to cite articles. And it's like, no, like at the end of the day, like, being an online coach is being, is, is being an online personal trainer. And you would never expect your personal trainer to just give you like citation upon citation upon citation. <laughs> you just want them to be a good personal trainer. Um, so I think that if that's, if that's your goal, if I want to be a good coach, find good people and read their information. And you don't need to be them. You just need to understand the things that they tell you, which can be hard because it can be very hard to find good information. And I find myself kind of struggling with this at times where I tell people like, you should read more, find more research reviews. And all of a sudden they're sending me like some book written by some quack about why gluten is killing us or why like, (laughs) why, you know, if you use a plastic water bottle, you're essentially going to die in five years. You know, it's like, it, it, it's hard to find the good information out there. So I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of our job as people who have a following to like promote Eric Helms and, and Lane and Allen and all these things. Um, so yeah, that, that's the first avenue. And the second avenue is that if you want to be the person who is understanding the, the, the research and being able to provide it for the people, I still think that starting at places like Mass, uh, Alan Aragon's Research Review, Jeff Nippert's videos, all those things, I think that is a, a very good place for you to start and see what they take away from it. Once you kind of read their summary, read how they got to those conclusions, read the paper yourself and see if you would have gotten to, 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 to similar conclusions or see kind of how these things align. Like, where are they picking holes? Where, where do they say this is good? And keep track of that. Because I think that a lot of people pr- probably like read the, the mass or, or Allen stuff and don't quite keep track of like, okay, this method is good. This method isn't good. This is why the study is good. This is why the study isn't good. And keep track of those things. And before you know it, you'll have built quite a repertoire of how to understand research. Maybe you won't be able to keep up with the statistical analysis, but you're going to be able to somewhat know which studies are valid and and appropriate and and how they can apply to your own context. And then before you know it, you're going to be able to not have to read the mass or, or Alan Zaragon research, research review. You're going to be able to just kind of pick, pick these studies up yourself and be able to understand them. But again, like that's only if you want to be that person, which a lot of people don't. I think that there's a lot of attraction in being that person, but I don't think that a lot of people genuinely like sitting down and reading a study from start to finish and trying to pick it apart. And I don't think that it's even appropriate for most people to do that. Answer that question. I love that answer, man. I, I think that's 
I think that's the answer more people need to hear. I think a lot of people think they need to go that deep. Um, I kind of look at it as like there's like levels of interpreters and there's like the researcher and then there's the people who can directly interpret the research, which is like you, the Eric's, Greg, um, Alan, Aragon, stuff like that. And then there's the coach who is the interpreter of the interpreter who has to take this information that you guys are breaking down for us and actually give it to the client give it to the customer, give it to the person that, like you said, they're just in the gym. They just want to lose some weight. They don't care about the nitty gritty. They don't care about where you cite your sources. They just need help. And I think that's where you have to kind of understand your level, accept it and be really happy to be in that position essentially. Right. And, and there's nothing wrong with not being at a deeper level. I mean, like if, if you just want to be a good personal trainer and you're out there helping people, well, shit, like you're actually directly helping people. I'm yeah. here conducting studies that like probably not a whole lot of people are going to read. <laughs> <laughs> But I love it, man. I think that's a really, really good answer. I want to I want to dive into some like random topics because it was funny. I was as I was uh, kind of writing notes to be like, okay, what do I want to talk with Miguel about? And I couldn't really settle on one thing because I feel like <laughs> every time I hear you, it's almost like a Q and A with you, regardless, because you know so many different things. Um, and maybe this leads into like something we can dive into more, and we'll stick with one thing. But I have like a few different things that I get questions about a lot that I've uh, taken away. Um, a good amount of information from you on other podcasts or blogs and things like that. Um, and the first one is uh, GDAs, glucose disposal agents. And um, you had a really good blog, which I'll link in the show notes um, on Revive Stronger about this. Um, and it took a different approach. A lot of people swear by them, especially like more old school bodybuilders and stuff. Um, and there's some good evidence about like metformin or berberin um, and things like that. But you kind of took a different approach and you had an interesting um, take on it and why it might not be the best thing always. So could you explain um, your thoughts on GDAs essentially and, and what you would give the listener as far as advice? Right. So whenever we're manipulating, so glucose disposal agents, essentially what they claim to do is that when you eat carbohydrate, they claim to be able to shuttle the nutrients to muscle and muscle glycogen and away from fat um, so that you are just recovering quicker. You're building muscle, muscle quicker, but the carbs aren't being used to store fat. Now, whenever we are manipulating something in the body like that, we have to know that there's, there's going to be other things that are also affected by it. You can't really just affect one part of, of, of a human system. It's a very dynamic and intricate and interwoven system. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, if GDAs work, then by which mechanisms do they work? And what has been largely found is that the way that GDAs work, if they do, by the way, um, because a lot of these glucose disposal agents are like highly underdosed and very ineffective, but if they do work, they would work by a mechanism called uh, AMP kinase. So they elevate this, this protein called AMP kinase. Um, and the problem with AMP kinase is that, is that it is a protein that largely signals when energy is low. And as a result of this, it is a direct inhibitor of the probably the most important protein that us bodybuilders care about uh, called mTOR, the, the, which is the, 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 the main regulator of muscle protein synthesis. So if glucose disposal agents work, it's by elevating AMPK. And AMPK directly inhibits mTOR, the protein that you need to elevate in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So I think that this is a prime example of people kind of missing the forest for the trees where they're like, ah, GDAs, GDAs, yay, my blood glucose. I'm like, ah, if this works, you're directly inhibiting muscle growth. And there are actually studies where they, where they use metformin and see that it blunts uh, hypertrophy gains uh, when, when, people, when people are using it because of the effect that it has on AMPK. So I think it's, it's one of those things where we really just need to look at the whole picture and not just kind of get carried away with one thing. I'm like, okay, like what, what, what might this one thing do? And you know, if we look at the whole system, it's like, ah, it has a way larger cost. It's definitely not worth it. 
do you think this is a matter of like, so like studies on Berberine and stuff like that, if, and I don't know uh, enough about the research to say this is the case, but just for example, um, if the people in the a study on Berberine were more sedentary, obese individuals and they saw longevity and weight loss, but nothing they're looking for is stimulating hypertrophy or maintaining as much muscle mass on a contest prep or a cut, for example. Um, is, it, is it one of those things where they see weight loss and people got carried away from that study and didn't think about what fat loss looks like for people like us in our industry? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that with a lot of Berberian re research, like there is one article that is really highly claimed where they're basically like, look, people took this Berberian supplement for 12 weeks and they saw like, I think it was like 10 or 15 pounds of weight loss. And then you, you look at what the article actually is. And it was an inter it was like a 12 week intervention where they had dietitians, they had medical doctors and they had the personal trainers on staff uh, teaching these people what to eat, how to exercise, supervising everything. And they took like five different supplements and the supplement that had berberin had like 10 different ingredients. And so now this is used to be like, Oh, berberin and like banana extract cause weight loss. Like, no, 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 no. Having a full team of, of, of medical doctors, personal trainers and dietitians to take over you, can help you with, with weight loss and put you in an, in an energy deficit, not the berberine. Um, and I think that a lot that a lot of the GDA research that people or people get carried away with like insulin sensitivity and stuff like that is because, like you say, of, of people who are sedentary. So, for example, you know, there's a big talk about like how much weight can we gain and, and still have good nutrient partitioning. That being, uh, you know, the, the nutrients you consume are they going towards muscle or to mm -hmm. fat? Um, you know, you've probably heard people say that, like, oh, you can only go above 15% like, body or you can go you, like only below 15% body fat. You have good nutrient partitioning. And if we look at that research, that research was primarily done on people who are bedridden, like not even just sedentary, bedridden. So if yes, if you are bedridden, probably the fatter you get, the fatter you get. But for people like us who are, you know, we're, we're going to the gym several times a week. We're in there for probably like one to two hours. We're progressively overloading, eating tons of protein, sleeping, recovering, and things like that. We don't know what the ceiling is. And we don't even know if there is a ceiling. Like if we look at, for example, like linemen in the NFL who are weighing like 300 plus pounds, I do, do you really think that they have dysregulated insulin sensitivity? Um, I mean, like the research shows that if, if they stop playing football and, and don't lose the weight, then at some point they do. But while they're playing football, while they're being super active, they don't. And there's even research on like sumo wrestlers that show that they have perfectly uh, a well-regulated uh, insulin levels and, and nutrient partitioning. So it's one of those things where like, people are getting carried away and not looking exactly at what the research says and who it was done on just being like, Oh, if you get over 15% body fat, you're going to have poor nutrient partitioning. It's like, yes. In people who are bedridden. Yeah. That's, that's wild. When you look deeper into some of these research studies, but I also think, I think a lot of people grab onto things like that. Cause it's like, Oh, I can take berberin or, Oh, I can do this. And, and, creating a deficit, being patient is very boring and not sexy. And it's, it's like, you know what I mean? So I think people grab onto that stuff, but my two follow-up questions would one, is there ever a good use in your opinion for uh, GDAs or Berberin or Metformin or anything like that? And then two, is there any merit to trying to focus on insulin sensitivity? I know a lot of people get confused about insulin and there's a lot of um, I think it's more of a bro thing, but there's a lot of people in the bodybuilding space that do really put an emphasis on um, managing insulin sensitivity or like resetting, going low carb for a while to improve insulin sensitivity. And they put so much merit on that. Um, and there's even some great prep coaches that do really good, get really great results, but they talk about it so much. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that entire topic in general. 
So with there ever being a time to use GDAs or metformin, berberine, stuff like that, if your doctor prescribes it, like if your medical doctor has prescribed it to you or, or, or a physician has, yeah, has prescribed it to you, then fucking use it. Like that, that's more important than anything, you know? Um, but other than that, like there's probably not really a whole bunch of scenarios where or really any scenarios where you need to take them. Um, again, the things that improve insulin sensitivity the most are kind of being somewhat relatively at, at a good body fat percentage. We don't know what that is. We don't know if it's 15% or up to like 20 or 25 if you're active, we don't really know. So that leads into the second thing. If you're if you're highly active, you're going into the gym multiple times per week, you're progressively overloading, you're eating protein, you're recovering, sleeping, all these things, your insulin sensitivity is probably fine. Um, and it's funny because people like read the research and, and, and look at, okay, well, what happens if, if I'm not lean? Um, you know, because you can find the term lean on, 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 on literature. And like, for that, for, for when they say lean, they usually mean like less than twenty to fifteen percent body fat, which most of us are. Um, so you probably don't have anything to worry about. And the prep coaches who focus on insulin sensitivity, I don't think that the results come from focusing on insulin sensitivity. I think it's just like one of those like magic tricks they just kind of like pull over the head. They're doing a whole bunch of stuff right, um, and like the insulin sensitivity, it just doesn't really help anything. Like I don't think I don't think we can attribute to. The, like their success to their focus on insulin sensitivity or really say that it plays a factor in anything. I think that they're just good prep coaches and they probably do like 90% of things right. And you know, the 10% things that they do wrong probably just don't interfere with their athletes progress. Or maybe they have just such genetically elite athletes that even if they do some really dumb stuff, they are still going to win because yeah. there are those people who like pretty much no matter what they do, they're going to win. Uh, I think that's a great answer. I think it keeps it simple and, and easy to understand. Um, the next thing I want to dive into is uh, CBD oil, because that's another one I get questions mm -hmm. about a lot. And you've spoken on this before. Um, and the main question there is just, I guess, essentially, is there any uh, legit data on this? And is it really worth the money? I know there's some conflicting things out there, um, just from what I've heard from other uh, researchers and, and research reviewers. Um, but I'm curious on your take. Right. So the, the thing with CBD is that it's one of those things that is promoted to say, okay, it relieves anxiety. Cool. But like, are you actually anxious? Like, do you, do you have actual chronic anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder or, or one of those things? Or are you just getting like stressed over one little thing? It's like people will say, oh, I, need, I needed to, to recover. I need it for anxiety. It's like recover from what? Anxiety from what? Um, I, I, and, and it's people who like don't even have anxiety or problems recovering, but they're taking it just to relieve anxiety that they don't really have. Um, so the, the, the research that has been done on people without like generalized anxiety disorders or any type of other anxiety disorder shows that it, it doesn't really um, show benefit. So if you don't have like a diagnosable anxiety disorder, it may not have a benefit. Um, and then in terms of sleep, there was, a, there, was a, there was a very extensive study done where they measured sleep using the Pittsburgh sleep scale. They, they measured time to fall asleep. They measured time in like one in, 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 uh, in, in REM sleep. They, they measured um, how recovered people felt the day afterwards, uh, how groggy they felt the day afterwards. And they found that CBD made no difference compared to, uh, to a control group. And they, they were taking an extremely high dosage of, of CBD. Um, so chances are that it might not help sleep at all the, the studies where they it has shown to help sleep are studies where people have taken thc 
and gotten THC-induced anxiety, and then the CBD helps. So essentially, they smoked weed, they got paranoid because they, they were smoking weed, and then the CBD helped. But CBD on its own didn't help. So yeah, maybe if you like, if, if you smoke like way too much weed, then CBD might help. Um, but other than that, no, there's there's not really strong evidence for it. Um, and if you have like like some type of very big anxiety disorder, um, it may be beneficial. Although I haven't dived into that literature my, myself quite quite so much yet, uh, because I don't really focus on people who have those anxiety disorders and don't really. Um, uh, uh, try to, to try to address that because they're obviously out of my scope of practice. Um, the one thing that, that, that does happen with CBD is that it can have quite a big placebo effect. We know the placebo effects are stronger in disorders that are invisible, disorders that are, that, that are fluctuating, um, and disorders that are chronic. So if we think of something like, uh, let's say people say that CBD helps people with GI disorders or with anxiety or stress or something like that. Um, those are diseases that are chronic, they're fluctuating, and they're invisible. It's something that the placebo effect can really, really have an effect on. Um, and we also know that the authority of the person who is discussing a placebo can have a significant effect on, on the placebo. Um, so if you have these massive influencers who are telling you, you know, someone with like 3 million followers who you really respect and they're telling you, you need CBD, it's going to change your life. That is someone who has authority. Whether you see it or not, that person has authority and that person has power and that influences the placebo effect even more. I love that. I think I, it was funny because as you were going through all the different things that research hasn't really held up on, I was going to ask about placebo because I was going to say, I think it's, it's a big part of it, um, especially with just how, I mean, it's so popular. And I, I mean, I don't know what it's like in New York, but in Washington, we have a dispensary on every corner and there's just CBD and medical marijuana everywhere. It's like, it's like godsend to people out here. So um, I'm glad to get your take on that. Cause I heard, I, I want to say I heard Greg Knuckles and Eric uh, Trexler talk about this on one of their episodes and they had a similar take and just basically it's, it's just super inconclusive. Um, not to mention a lot of them have been found to have uh, a THC in them. So they're not all that well regulated. There was a study that, that looked at, I think it was like 18 different CBD supplements ranging from uh, uh, vapor to oil uh, to gummies, to edibles. And they found that some like 40% of them had actual THC in them. So it's something that may not be beneficial. And if you have some type of, I don't know, like drug testing at your work or school or whatever, yeah may not be the best of ideas or if you are going to to take it just make sure that you 100 percent know that it's a good source right uh, which is hard to do um, yeah. so uh the next thing i had on here was uh muscle damages role on hypertrophy and then i know you've spoken briefly about this on another podcast but the reason i wanted to ask about this is because um i think there's a lot of different takes on the topic you know there's some people that show with research is you don't need to get sore. There is like muscle damage. Isn't really as big of an effect. Uh, it doesn't have as big of an effect on muscle hypertrophy as we once thought it did. Um, and then there's other people, specifically people like uh, Mike Ezretel, who I, I do really respect and I like a lot of his content. Um, but he has talked about how uh, it's more of an anecdotal thing in his mind, I think, but he does think that it has a role and, and there's a reason that you're getting sore and that's part of it and novelty and so on and so forth. So I really just want to get your take and on not only like your experience with clients and yourself, but also what you think the research does tell us. 
So the research on muscle damage, the problem with it is that it's very hard to separate all three parts of, of muscle hypertrophy. So just to kind of back up, uh, it's been proposed that muscle hypertrophy is caused by three things, those being mechanical tension, quite literally being the tension that you place upon your muscle fibers when you lift, uh, muscle damage, that being like the little tears in the muscle that everyone talks about, um, and metabolic stress, that mainly being the accumulation of metabolic byproducts, um, probably what most people end up feeling as the, the pump. Um, and more and more research has been showing that mechanical tension and progressive mechanical tension in the form of progressive volume overload is probably the main driver of muscle hypertrophy. Now, the problem with this is that in science, we try to separate things and see what their effect is on, on the outcome variable. But we can't do this because let's say, for example, we want to test out the, whether mechanical tension is the, is the sole driver of muscle hypertrophy. Well, can you think of a way that you're going to progressively overload without getting sore and without getting a pump? It's very, very difficult, like, yeah. especially if, if you're going to be, be going anywhere close to failure. Like if you're there just kind of lifting some pink dumbbells for like two reps, okay, cool. You did two reps the first day, three reps the second. It's still not effective. Like if you actually want to effectively build muscle growth, we can't quite separate these things out. Uh, the best we can do is look at research where they are sort of teased out. Um, so for example, we can look at research where individuals use blood flow restriction training. So blood flow restriction training um, where you know, you're cutting off a, 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 a limb um, and continuing to, to uh, allow blood to go into the muscle, but not any to get out of the muscle. Um, that is a, a method of training that allows you to have greater mechanical tension with very uh, low weight. Because of the low weight that you're using, it doesn't cause as much muscle damage. Um, and we can kind of look at that and say, okay, well, cool. If we compare blood flow restriction training to regular training, we don't see that, uh, that, that blood flow restriction training reduces training effect like people still grow just as much so we can probably tease out there that you know if muscle damage is a primary driver of hypertrophy we probably hypothesize that mechanical tension plus muscle damage would build more more muscle than just mechanical tension but it doesn't um, we can also look at research on people who do like uh, downhill sprinting downhill sprinting causes a lot of muscle damage specifically because the main driver of muscle damage in resistance training uh, it seems to be uh, eccentric exercise that uses type 2 fibers um, because type 2 fibers are very sensitive to muscle damage especially in the eccentric uh, the reason for that is because if you if you kind of picture how a velcro works um, when you kind of like latch velcro onto each other it's nice and smooth that's how your muscles contract and then when they when 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 you reach that eccentric phase the the the, the myosin actin heads like rip apart and that causes muscle damage um, and type 2 fibers are very very sensitive to this so when people do eccentric exercise specifically like downhill sprinting that causes a lot of muscle damage we see absolutely no muscle growth in those people um, and then we can look at things like uh, endurance running where that causes a lot of muscle damage and we see no growth so so those things have just kind of caused people to, to, to say okay well is muscle damage an actual primary driver of muscle hypertrophy um, or does it just contribute in some sort of way or is it just something that's inevitable and I don't think that we're going to be able to quite answer the question I think that mechanistically we can look at the research and say okay well like in individuals who have legitimate muscle damage, like a muscle injury, muscle damage seems to trigger uh, a satellite cell proliferation in the reparative process that is also involved in muscle hypertrophy. But we don't know if at the level that we, at the level of damage that we're causing with hypertrophy, if muscle damage is actually going to induce a significant hypertrophy, um, more than mechanical tension would otherwise. Uh, we also can't really tease it out in any way, shape, or form, because again, if we're, if we're getting people, which we're training them for a long period of time, um, they are going to end up getting muscle damage. Another thing that we can look at in order to just kind of 
say, okay, maybe muscle damage doesn't have a, a, very, a very large role is looking at the repeated bout effect. So the repeated bout effect is a protective mechanism that your body has against muscle damage. So this is, uh, for example, if you start doing a new exercise, you probably feel very, very sore afterwards. Your body doesn't like that. Again, it's damaging. It's not good for you. Um, so it, it, it elicits this repeat about effect, which is not fully understood, but it essentially kind of gets used to the exercise. And after a while, you won't get sore. You don't get sore anymore because your body now doesn't get as damaged. And when individuals have this repeat about effect, we don't see that they reduce muscle growth. They actually increase muscle growth. Uh, this is a part where you're, you know, you're, you're progressively overloading on your squats, your bench press, those big lifts, and not getting sore. You're just kind of being able to go after it and hit after it. Um, but we don't see that that interferes with any type of muscle growth whatsoever. In fact, there was a study done by Demos et al where they looked at uh, both muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown in response to a novel training program. And essentially what they found was that immediately after the first week of training, both muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown were at the highest. This is because you did something novel, you stimulated muscle protein synthesis, but because it was novel, muscle protein breakdown actually increased almost just as much. Um, by the, by, by the, the midpoint measurement in, in the study, they found that uh, both muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown had decreased, but there was still no, no, uh, growth, no, no, no detectable growth in the participants. So we saw a huge peak in muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown in the beginning of the study, but no growth. Still a peak in the middle, but no growth. And the only time where, where the researchers actually saw growth was at the end of the study, when muscle protein synthesis had decreased and muscle protein breakdown had actually just returned to, to baseline, showing that muscle damage might even interfere with muscle hypertrophy because it, your, your body might just spend some time in this area where it, it's just recovering from the damage and not actually growing any new tissue. That makes a lot of sense. I think the, fir the first thing you said with the, that last part kind of puts it together really well was like uh, muscle damage is almost kind of like an inevitable factor when you are uh, creating maximal tension the right way. And I think that um, if you are actually progressively overloading every once in a while, especially if you introduce a new exercise on a new phase, you're probably going to get a little bit sore, but that repeated bout effect kind of takes over. And I'm assuming ends up at a point where muscle protein synthesis is a little bit higher than breakdown or a lot higher. And that's what's leading to the growth essentially. Right, exactly. And that's, I mean, it, it's something that we can't ever kind of hide away from because we can't just expect our clients to use the same exercises forever and ever. Um, and let's face it, like a little bit of soreness does feel good. Um, I think that that's something that we just can't possibly deny. And, you know, when a client says, hey, I no longer got sore, a lot of coaches are like, no, that's good. And it's like, yeah, you might lose that client, man, yeah. because like that, that might okay. be then just getting bored of the program. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred um, percent. I think there's. A, I, I actually talk about this a lot. I think there's a fine balance of exercise variation. Where, um, as somebody who's like my my job is to be a great coach, and so there's a lot of clients that we work with that do get bored. But you can't change things so frequently that they're either constantly in a state of novelty and they never get to progressively overload because it's always a new stimulus. Um, it's that's partially probably why. CrossFit's not the best route to take if you want to build <laughs> as much muscle as possible. Um, but I think also like people, there's some classic bodybuilders that'll be like, okay, this is a 16 week block. And it's like, this is it. And you're here for 16 weeks. And it's like, not that many people can do that because they get very bored after a three or four weeks. And it's good to change. Like, like for me personally, like my compounds stay, but let me change some of my accessory work, even like it, just to stimulate my mind, go from a wide grip to a neutral grip. Like that alone makes it feel new and doesn't necessarily create a ton of new novelty, but at least changes the, my perspective of the mental side of training and keeps me engaged. And I think that's something for trainers to really pay attention to. 
Oh, absolutely. I think that as a, as a trainer, you should kind of think about movements as, okay, like what, what's the primary thing that this is training? And if I want to like reduce muscle damage, but somehow trick my client into thinking that this is a new movement, like what can I do? You know, you can go from like a, like a right, or like a rope push down to like a straight bar push down. I'm like, oh, it's a new exercise, but it's like really fundamentally, you know, it's the exact same exercise. Or you can go from like a, you know, like a, like a supinated bicep curls, like a, barbell bicep curl or something like that you know you can just kind of like switch switch it out so the client feels like it's something new or even yourself like you feel like it's something new but really you're not going through that whole um, muscle damage process again yeah i agree 100 i think that's kind of the art of programming this actually goes into uh, one of my talks that i had on here really well um uh just about muscle protein synthesis in general um and whether or not it's something that we should be focusing on from a timing perspective, I think that there's kind of two crowds where it's like very important to split it up. And I think there's other crowd that are like, it doesn't matter. Eat as much protein as you want in a single meal. As long as your daily intakes hit, you're fine. I think that for me personally, and I'd love to hear your take because I'm kind of in the middle. Like I think there's, there's something that's most important and then there's a way to be optimal, um, but it doesn't need to be something that you're OCD about. And, and I kind of fit right there in the middle and I want to get your take on that. Right. So the, the the thing about protein is that it is a nutrient that can't be stored because of the nitrogen compound in it. Um, it, can, it cannot be stored. Um, so it's not something you can kind of like accumulate. Like it's not like you can have a huge protein meal and just kind of be in like a muscle protein synthesis for hours and hours on end. Um, muscle protein synthesis is a process that lasts about three to five hours, regardless of the protein of the amount of protein that was consumed in it. Obviously, if you have like 100 grams of protein, it might be more towards like four and a half, five hours. If you have 20 grams of protein, it might be closer to three hours. But um, the point is that it doesn't really get much much more outside of that. So uh, this has been shown in rodents. This has been shown in humans. And because of this, the recommendation is that you know we should probably eat four meals with about a quarter of our protein intake in each one, probably somewhere between like at least 20 to 40 grams of protein in each meal uh, so that we're kind of all, always in the state of, uh, or as much as possible, please don't wake up in your sleep to have a protein shake uh, so that we're in the state where we are uh, always, you know, anabolic, you know, favorite, everyone's favorite word. We're always in a, in a state where muscle protein synthesis is elevated. Um, so then it really doesn't make sense to have a one large meal at the end of the day, uh, because the, the process of muscle protein synthesis is going to only be for that three to five hour period. And studies have shown that having one, one big protein meal does not, uh, stimulate muscle protein synthesis or does not lead to as much muscle protein synthesis as having a, a few, uh, smaller meals. So for example, there was a study where they looked at uh, people who were having uh, protein distributed with five grams and five grams in breakfast, 15 at lunch and 65 at dinner. And this is kind of how the average North American eats. If you think about it, probably like five grams of protein at breakfast would be like a cereal, 15 grams, maybe like a, a sandwich with like a little slice of ham in there or like a pizza or something. And then at dinner, you probably have like a steak or chicken or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and they compared that to people who are having three meals of 30 grams of protein in each one. And they found that the people who had the 30 grams of protein across three meals uh, built significantly more muscle than the people who were having the 5, 15, 65, showing that you can't just make up for your protein intake at the end of the day. Um, interestingly, though, there was a study recently done by Tinsley et al. in which he looked at the effects of intermittent fasting uh, compared to continuous eating. And he had a very, very interesting approach. What he did is instead of having this like one meal a day approach, he did what I have been talking about. And probably I'm sure that you have talked about this and, you know, Steve has talked about this, uh, doing an intermittent fasting approach where you're only having small protein meals uh, to kind of get the effect of muscle protein synthesis throughout the day. So what they did 
is that the people who had to have a protein shake right before training. They would, they would train it like uh, around noon, somewhere around there. Uh, they would do they did the traditional 16-8 fast. Um, they would have a protein shake right before training. They would have a protein shake right after training. And then if you think about it, that just means they need to have two more meals at some point during the day, which isn't hard to do. Uh, and they found that those people built as much muscle mass as people who were having five to six meals continuously throughout the day, which shows us that there is this kind of like threshold. And if we want to do intermittent fasting, but we still care about our, our physique and we still want to maximize hypertrophy, cool. You can just have protein-based meals. So just have a quick shake before the gym, have a quick shake sometime after the gym, and then you still have two meals afterwards. Because most people, when they do intermittent fasting, they're not thinking about the massive chicken breast that they're going to eat. They're thinking about the carbs and the fats and all the good stuff. So that, that's the way that you can kind of go around intermittent fasting, still maximize anabolism as far as we know, um, and get to have those like big-ass meals that people with intermittent fasting like to have. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I didn't know that they did a, a research study on that. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something um, I've called a modified protein sparing fast. And I've yeah. used that <laughs> on many clients in, in the past. And I think it's it's a much safer route to go. And it's actually, I, I like it better too, because you don't come into the, because I know some people, especially in the physique world, if they do intermittent fasting and they're so excited for that huge meal, sometimes that actually leads to a trigger to binge more. Um, and it's an unhealthy relationship. So sometimes even just the feedings of protein leading up to that actually allow a little bit more control going into your, your nightly feast, um, which is helpful as well. Right. And I think that, you know, just probably one of the main concerns that I have with intermittent fasting is that I've seen people then not be able to have a normal meal. Like what happens when your parents want to take you out for brunch? Like, and I've seen it cause anxiety in people where it's like, I, how am I supposed to eat and not eat until like my stomach, it feels like it's distended, you know, because that's kind of like, you know, if you're eating like 2,500 calories a meal, that's realistically what you're going to feel. Um, and these people just like get anxiety over not being able to eat at this point and, you know, get hunger anxiety. So I think that, you know, if, if intermittent fasting is getting to the point where you're like, I don't think I could not eat a meal like this, it's probably not the best for your psyche. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Um, I want to respect your time, man. I know you're crazy busy as am I, and we've, uh, ran it off a, a really good podcast with a ton of information. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, is there anywhere that, um, I know you're knee deep in the research, so I don't know if there is, but if there's anywhere that, um, I mean, definitely your Instagram, but anywhere else that you want to send people for more content from you or more information or anything that you have to offer, um, can you please let us know? Right. So you can follow me on Instagram at mblacute. That's M-B-L-A-C-U-T-T. Uh, you can follow uh, or you can go to revivestronger.com to see some of my articles or, or miguelblacute.com. Um, those are probably the best places that you can find me. And then I have a research gate profile where you can see some of the work that I have done. Love it. I'll link all those in the show notes. And man, I really do awesome. appreciate the time today. Cool. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. It's been awesome. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. 
This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.